The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. You can follow along on the screen behind me, or you can grab one of the Bibles um, you see on the floor around you. We're on page 567, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So I was doing a little reading this week, and um, I read a story about a music teacher, and uh, his name's Anthony Showalter. Uh, Showalter was from Virginia, and so in the late 1880s, he got uh, uh, two devastating letters in the mail. And being a music teacher, he had taught hundreds of students at that point, and two of his students separately had wrote him letters Uh, letting them know that their wives had died. And so he was crushed and didn't know how to handle it. And so the Lord had brought, as he was sort of grieving and thinking about how to respond to his pupils, um, the Lord brought to his mind uh, a verse from Deuteronomy 32. It said, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And so as he wrestled through that passage and the the devastating news, one day him and a friend, while he was in a little town in Alabama, just put pen to paper and tried to wrestle through how to deal with the reality of that particular devastation, but just in general. And so here's what he started writing. What a fellowship, what a joy divine leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have a blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. So as Dale mentioned, we find ourselves today in the second Sunday in Advent, which is to reflect and think about what it actually means to have and enjoy peace. Peace in particular circumstances, but in general, what does that mean? And as you can tell from the passage, we're looks like going to a very unlikely place, which is Isaiah chapter 2. 
So before we go there, uh, let's pray, ask the Lord to come and show himself to us, and then we can dip our toe in the water. Heavenly Father, we know that we don't need to ask you to come and be with us because you are here. But what we do need to ask is for eyes to see the ways in which you are here. And Lord, you have revealed all that we need to know about who you are in the Bible. And so we have a tall order of trying to think about Isaiah chapter 2 this morning. And on our own, we'll think about it poorly. We'll take no application from it. We will not see what you've intended. Um, but if your Holy Spirit will come and like an optometrist show us what is already there, we can learn from Isaiah and we can apply to our particular circumstances because we all stumble in here certainly with different Weeks, days, months, years, uh, and life circumstances. But your, your, your holy word is the great neutralizer of all those things. And so we need it, even whether we know we need it or not. So would you come and, and show yourself through Isaiah 2, 1 through 4 this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So the book of Isaiah... Uh, and I, just full confession, had not spent hardly any time personally in Isaiah. And so I just really enjoyed this week thinking through and uh, spending some time in the text. Uh, Isaiah is written by the prophet Isaiah to the people of Judah. At this time in Israel's history, there, there's two sort of uh, camps, if you will. Israel to the, uh, to the north and Judah to the south. And Isaiah is speaking to specifically those in Judah. And this is at about 780, 790 BC, right? And Isaiah's book is a pretty heavy book. Uh, it's filled with judgment and wrath and warning and admonishment. Um, but... Isaiah's cadence is that every time, and, and, and the book is 60 plus chapters long, every time he lays out a warning or harsh language, he immediately follows it with hope. And that's the cadence of the whole book is wrath, judgment, warning, hope. And so if you read ahead, chapter one, it's pretty heavy handed. Uh, there's some heavy, heavy language. Uh, in fact, you don't turn there, but uh, Isaiah calls the people a people laden with sin. He says, if God wouldn't have spared you, there'd be nobody left. He, he likens the city to a prostitute who gives themselves away to anybody who wants. Isaiah in chapter 1 is going pretty hard into the people of Judah and their unfaithfulness, right? Their lack of repentance, the ways in which they are living in direct opposition to the law that God gave them on Mount Sinai through Moses. And then we round chapter two, and we have that in our rear view, so to speak. 
And chapter 2, praise God, is the hope part. And God's already told Isaiah, and this un- unveils itself and plays out through the book of Isaiah, that these Israelites who had been promised a land would be overtaken, that they would become enslaved, that they would lose the land in which they had been promised, and they would lose religious freedom, personal freedom, through the Assyrians, then the Babylonians. But here, in verses 2, 1 through 4, Isaiah has a, a different future in mind. I think that is really important, particularly when we're reading Old Testament prophecy, right? Is, is to keep in mind, one, what's, what's the genre? What's the literary genre of the Bible? Right? We don't want to read our Bibles poorly, particularly uh, when it comes to things like prophecy. And so the Old Testament prophecies work a lot like, and I've heard a pastor use this as very helpful, it's a lot like looking at a mountain range. Right? So when you get into Denver, if you've ever been to Denver, you, you see all these mountains, and if you were to draw a picture of it, all the mountains look side by side, don't they? Right? Just mountaintops side by side. They must be neighbors. Well, that's not true. Right? They are hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles apart. And so Isaiah's reader here, which would have been the... Uh, um, the Israelites in the 700s, right? Isaiah's reader would have seen that mountain range, would have seen some of the things that Isaiah is going to talk about and seen, seen them as sort of all happening together, one after the other. But we know, in fact, now being on this side of Christ Jesus, that there's actually a lot of time between when those events play out. So as we consider verses 1 through 4, it'll be helpful to remember that Old Testament prophecy can happen in waves. There could be multiple fulfillments of what Isaiah is intending here. So let's do that. If you have your Bibles, it will be helpful. Uh, We're going to uh, reference it quite a good bit. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. Let's just start in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Pause. Right, so the latter days here, it's unclear whether Isaiah is referencing particularly the days that would start after Jesus was resurrected, which we know to be the latter days. Or if he's referencing something even beyond that. But what's clear here is that Isaiah, from his purview, is thinking about a day that is beyond the horizon. Right? A day that is to come. It's not clear necessarily what he means other than it's some day that is not today. All right, so it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. Hard stop there. That phrase, the mountain of the house of the Lord, is the key to unlocking not just verses 1 through 4, but much of Old Testament prophecy. So let's consider 
what that might mean. Well, quite literally, the mountain of the house of the Lord would have been the temple in Jerusalem. And for all of you topographers out there, Jerusalem is actually on a hill or a small mini mountain, right, elevated above sea level. So the temple that was built, that had been built by Solomon 250 years prior, was sitting on the top of this hill, Jerusalem. But to understand what Isaiah is intending, we actually have to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and the Garden of Eden. The mountain of the house of the Lord starts in Genesis 1. So, in Genesis 1, we have God creating the Garden of Eden. But the Garden of Eden wasn't just a garden, right? At that point, it really was the entire earth, and it represented something. The Garden of Eden represented absolute peace and the full presence of God, or what the Hebrew reader would have called shalom, right? God's peace. Everything is at rest. Everything is as it should be, right? But then we know, as we continue to read in the story, that Adam and Eve sin by eating fruit from the tree of the garden, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they're banished from Eden. They're also banished at that point from the peace and presence of God. So now if you have read Genesis, we know that the peace and presence of God, instead of residing in all of the earth, it only resides in Eden. And there's actually an angel with a sword that's got fire on it, guarding anyone from entering the peace and presence of God. And so Adam and Eve at this point are banished from both his presence and his peace. And we know, we just have to read a couple of chapters ahead in Genesis chapter 6, God looks down on the earth and says, there is so much evil and man is so wicked that I ought to flood the earth and start over. And so, he does flood the earth. (laughs) And we know as we continue to read that God had promised the people of Israel after he reappeared to them. He reappears to, to Moses through the burning bush. And Moses doesn't even know who he is. That's how far they had drifted from the Garden of Eden. Moses doesn't even know who he is. God tells him, leads him into the wilderness, and God says, my presence and peace will be with you, and I will let you take me with you in the Ark of the Covenant. So now, at this point, there is complete chaos and disaster and evil and all things anti the morality and gospel of God everywhere except the Ark of the Covenant where God's peace and presence resided. And so then we know that as we've just got out of earlier this year, the book of Samuel, that the Ark of the Covenant is then stolen by the Philistines, but David gets it back. And so David takes the Ark to Jerusalem. 
And his son Solomon says, an ark isn't good enough for the presence and peace of God. We need to build a temple. So they do. Solomon spends 20 years building a temple. And so now, at this point, the peace and presence of God rests in a little tiny room guarded by a thick curtain where one guy once a year can go into it. But Isaiah says, that's where we are today. Let me tell you about a day to come. Right? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. Let's keep reading and we find out what Isaiah envisions the future of this house of Lord or the future of the peace and presence of God. End of verse 2 here. And shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Right At this point, salvation and the presence of God is only... For the ethnic Jew. Right? Think about it. The temple, you could only enter the temple where the presence of God resided if you were considered a clean Jew. If you had cleansed yourself through the ceremonial law. But Isaiah is saying, hey, there's a day coming when all the nations shall flow to this house of the Lord on this mountain. And, 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 and think about the language there. Isaiah is, Isaiah is giving us imagery a lot like a river flows. Right? And so we see all the nations flowing to it, which, by the way, is a fulfillment of the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis 22. said, I will bless all of the nations through your seed. Right? So think about this. Now we have a river of humanity flowing upstream. Towards God. This is what Isaiah is laying out for them. He said there's a day coming when not only will the house of the Lord be for you. But it will be for all the nations. And and all of the nations will flow up mountain, upstream towards this place. This is the same kind of imagery that we see in the Garden of Eden. That there is a river that flows Right? We see it in Ezekiel 47. That there is a, 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 a river that flows from the throne of God. And it goes out to the people. And the imagery there is just... It, it is, I, I encourage you, go back and look at Ezekiel 47 when you have some time this week. It, it talks about a river, if you could almost imagine with me, a, a river that, that crosses over dry and destitute land. And the moment the river gets there, immediately there is greenery. There's flowers. There's life. That this river is a healing river. Right? It flows and its, its, fruit, its trees bear fruit in every season. Its leaves don't wither. That this river has healing water in it that's nourishment for everything that it touches. 
Do, do you see who the river is? Do you see what Isaiah is intending? That this river is full of living water. What does Jesus tell the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He says, woman, why do you drink of this water when I have the water that if you drink of, you will never thirst again? And what does she say? She says, who has living water? Jesus Christ is the river that flows from the presence of God. Jesus Christ is the living water that goes out and offers the peace and presence of God to all of the nations. Isaiah intends for us to see, just like he did his reader then, that there would be a day coming, and they were 800 years shy of it, when the, when the, when the house of the Lord, the peace and presence of God, would no longer be exclusively for the ethnic Jew, but it would be for all nations. And it would come through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ flows out amongst all peoples. You know, praise God that the presence of God is not hidden from us in an ark. It doesn't reside in a place where we can't see it or taste it or experience it. And, and unlike the reader here, their disobedience led to the removal of God's presence. Their unfaithfulness left them without his peace. But praise God that through Christ we don't have to have those same set of rules because Christ's peace and presence are always with us. Keep reading. Isaiah says in verse 3, Come, he said, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah says, Hey, there's a time coming when people, and not just Jewish people, but people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, will long for the presence of God, will want to be taught will want to walk in his ways according to his commandments and his statutes. But how in the world could that be possible if his own people, given every set of opportunity, with every possible advantage, with all the benefits, and they still choose evil and rebellion? Right? We just, you can pick anywhere in your Old Testament, and it's probably an example of how the Israelites are being disobedient, unfaithful, and unrepentant. So if God's own chosen people couldn't even choose his statutes or his commands, how in the world would there be a time and place 
where anybody else could choose, as Isaiah tells us here, to go up to the mountain of the house of God and be taught in his ways and walk in his paths. How is that even possible? Well, as we read in Isaiah, we find the answer. Right, this goes all the way, and you don't have to turn there. This goes all the way to chapter 10. Again, the cadence of Isaiah is judgment, wrath, and warning followed by hope. So the end of chapter 10, Isaiah is just laying it on him again. Right, by the way, the book was written over like 80 years. So it's basically like what he did his whole life. It was just harsh warning, harsh judgment, hope. Right? So here we are, Isaiah 10. And he's telling them that these people that he called his own, God's people, were so unfaithful that their tree, right, their family tree, was so evil and wicked that God was going to chop down their tree. He was literally, the language there is going to burn or smolder or cut down the tree of Israel. And nothing would be left of this people except a small seed. And as is Isaiah's tendency, we turn to chapter 11 and we see. This is where Jonathan was last week. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. God was refining or working out or taking down the old seed. And Isaiah was telling them that there was a new seed coming that would sprout up a new tree who would have different fruit. And it was the seed of Christ that instead of the Israelites being left to their own devices of blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience, Isaiah says there's a day coming when there will be a new seed whose perfect obedience bears fruit in your life. What is that fruit? That is the presence of God in the lives of his people. That no longer is his peace and presence subjected to our behavior, but it's rooted in the seed and obedience of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ inside of his people bear fruit. They're the fruits of the Spirit. They're a fruit that we cannot produce on our own. And so Isaiah is telling us here that that day is coming. And we know that with Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that that day has come. That we are these people. That we are these people that can beg for God to teach us his ways. That we can... We can live in such a way that we walk in his paths. Let's keep reading. And we're going somewhere with this. Next half of verse 3. For out of Zion shall go the law. Isaiah told them that there's a day coming. It's on the horizon, can't see it where salvation and the presence of God will be opened up to all people with full access. 
And that in his presence there is fullness of joy and peace. A peace that you don't know right now. Isaiah says that day's coming. And also, in that day, we won't have to rely on our own holiness or morality to produce behavior that satisfies or displeases God. That there's one who will come and permanently satisfy God's holy requirements. And that new seed is in us bearing fruit. And at that point, the law shall go out from Zion. Well, we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So literally you could read this. From the house of God shall go forth Jesus Christ. You see, the Old Testament was a a come and see message. Right? God had a holy people which he showered blessings on regardless of their behavior, even in their unworthiness and unrighteousness and unrepentance, so that all of the nations would see and would be led to repentance because of God's kindness. So the Old Testament, the gospel is come and see. Come and see how good this God is. But now in the New Testament, it's a go and tell gospel. So that's what the Great Commission is, right? Go, therefore, into all the nation. Go to everybody and tell them that the law, that the peace and presence of God is for everyone. That it goes out. It doesn't sit in a room uh, surrounded by stone and a curtain. That it goes out everywhere. In case you're not convinced yet, let me just, Isaiah is the most heavily quoted Old Testament prophet in New Testament writings. Let me just give you like five or six scriptures that hopefully sort of cement what we're considering. This is 1 Corinthians 14. God is a God of peace. Ephesians 2. For he himself, God, is our peace. He came and preached, Jesus, he came and preached Peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Later in Ephesians, talking about the armor of God here. The armor of God is the gospel of peace. Colossians 1. Jesus reconciled all things to himself on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Friends, there is only one place where peace exists. And that's with God. And unlike the tribe of Judah or the nation of Israel, we don't have to mediate through a priest. We, we don't have to wonder year to year whether God's peace and presence will be with us or will leave us. And we, in fact, know that God, through Jesus Christ, gave us a seal of his peace. So like a jar, we have been sealed up 
And there is no peace and no presence of God that leaves that jar for the Christian. And that's through the Holy Spirit. But let's deal with some practical issues that come up, right? Because we, we live in the reality of, yes, certainly this passage is more true of us today than it was the original reader. But don't raise your hand if you permanently feel peace, permanently desire God, permanently walk in his statutes, and you feel at total peace in God's presence all the time, right? That's nobody ever. So let's deal with some practical issues that come up. What if you, let's just ask two quick questions. What if you don't feel the peace and presence of God. Right? Unlike the Israelites, the peace and presence of God is not dependent on us. So what happened when Christ, because the good news of the gospel is not that Christ came. The good news of the gospel is not that Christ died. Everybody dies. The good news of the gospel is that Christ Jesus was resurrected. That the one thing that Satan has to disrupt peace is death and sin. Jesus Christ lives and dies. If that's where the story stops, there is no good news. By him being resurrected, he now wages war and ultimately decapitates the only thing that can wage war against the peace and presence of God, which is sin and death. So, because of that act, and because Christ Jesus sits at the throne ruling and reigning... If you don't, and you're a Christian, I'm talking specifically to Christians, if you don't feel the peace and presence of God, that has nothing to do with your eternal peace and rightness with God and has very much to do with your communion with him. Those are two very different things. Right? And what Satan wants to tempt us, because we know Satan is the accuser, he stands at the foot of Jesus accusing us, trying to steal the peace for which Christ has purchased for his people. you imagine that? Imagine you buying a new house and somebody comes up and takes your keys and says, this is my house. It's not your house. It's just purchased. But yet, as Christians... We, we can act like peace is up for debate, right? Like it's negotiable. Now, I'm not mitigating that there are real circumstances and real moments where peace is the farthest thing from your grasp, right? There are seasons and there are sometimes long seasons 
of hopelessness, of no peace, and no rest. But there is a day coming for you if you are a Christian where that peace won't be intermittent. It will be forever. Right? There's a day coming when that peace doesn't come and go. But it is the entire existence. And so, friend, if you don't feel peace now, let me give you a couple practical things to do. Number one, pray for it. Number two, get around other Christians that you do observe the peace of God in. Because what can happen is in God's kindness and providence to us, he, he can stoke that fire back into existence. Right? He, he, can, he, can, he can illuminate his peace and his presence as we spend time with others that we observe it in. I, I personally have been through long periods of deep, deep spiritual and emotional despair. And, and I know it, it, it is horrible to feel like you are in Christ but are getting none of the benefits of his peace and presence. Pray. Get around others that you observe it in. Question two. How do you keep, and this is really a build off of question one, how do you keep the peace and presence of God alive and fresh in your own heart? Right? Because I, I can tell, I mean, if, if you wake up and go to work on a Monday morning or, or you get up out of bed on a Monday morning, at least not in my house, it's not like, you know what, I am at such peace this morning. Peace is not like a warm, cuddly blanket, right, that you just put on on Monday morning and just carries you through the rest of the week. So in, in addition to praying and being around others that you observe the peace and presence of God in, read your Bible. Right? The Bible cover to cover has all we need for what Peter tells us is life and godliness. We need no new special word, no new revelation, no prophecy, no emotional experience. We have everything that we need in God's word. Number four, and this may feel counterintuitive. Tell someone else about the wonders and beauties and mercies of the peace and presence of God. You know, C.S. Lewis, and we've mentioned this before, C.S. Lewis says that joy, it really isn't complete unless you share it with someone else. Peace doesn't really take root in your own heart until you're recruiting others into it. So let's talk about that for a second. How can we share the peace of God with someone else? Aside from praying for an opportunity and, and asking the Holy Spirit to give you sensitivity to understand and see when and who to talk about God's peace, let me give you some teeth 
on how you, in, in case you've never talked about it before, how could you talk about the peace and presence of God to your coworker, to your family member over the holiday, to a, to a spouse, to, to a child? You can do it to a stranger too. What if, you, what if you went up to somebody who you care about or at least are in relationship with and you just ask them, you say, hey, I was just thinking, it's the holidays and all. Have you ever thought about what, it, what peace means? Right? Have you ever thought about what it means to live at peace? You know, I had never thought about it until I found it. Can I, would it be okay if I just told you a little bit about how in my own life I found that no matter what had happened, no matter what circumstances I was in, that I was at peace? Or, or, or how about this? How about you walk up to a friend or a coworker? family member you sit down with them and you say can I ask you a question do you think it's possible with everything that's going on in the world in life do you think it's possible to have real peace or is that a fool's errand what do you think you think it's possible chances are they'll probably say either no or mm, maybe but I haven't found it yet and you know what you can say? I used to think the same thing. And then I found it. Can I share with you how God has brought peace into my life? Friends, what you may find is that even in talking about a peace that you don't feel in the moment, that God in his rich mercy to you reminds you of all that he is through Christ. And so, we live in a, a tension right now. The tension being this, that we know if we are Christians, that there's a day coming in Revelation 22 tells us that there's a day coming when that river that flows from the throne of God and lights up the streets of gold will run throughout all the land and the people of God will see the face of God. Right? And unlike Moses in Exodus 34 when he hides himself from God's presence, his people in that day will look at him and we, seeing God's face, will be the largest blessing of the age to come. Because unlike peace being a characteristic that maybe one of us have, we look at God and he is peace. It is his being. And so we, in that day, will be able to nestle up closely and rest fully 
in the peace that is God. And we get that today. We get tastes of that today. But we live in a reality where there are things attacking this peace that we've been promised all the time. And so how can we best live in that already but not yet space? There's nothing new, nothing revolutionary. It's actually very simple. We ask God for it. We spend time with others who have it, and we talk about it. And like a, like a beehive with all the bees sort of hovering together, and they're just trying to make it back to the beehive. What's that thing? It's like a um, lost bee syndrome. I don't know if you've seen that. It's like all the pesticides that are on all the, uh, the beehives now. Like the bees forget how to get home. And so like, seriously, this is like an epidemic apparently where bees are dying. I'm not making this up. That bees are dying at an unprecedented rate. So you know how we keep from being bees that die? We stay together. And then we go out together. Because there's no one who in and of themselves can have, keep, or fully understand the peace and presence of God. You have a portion and measure and picture of God's peace and presence that I can observe that I can't see in my own life. And together, collectively, we paint a picture for all nations of the peace and presence of God. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.